Hello, Electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner. I know the last few weeks have been especially hard. You know, but the only way to turn things around is political engagement. And our best chance is by becoming more engaged and volunteering for midterms, which are just around the corner. It all starts with the House. If we just flip 23 districts in the House, we'll take back the majority and finally put a check on President Trump and the regressive administration enabling him. That includes the regressive and cruel immigration policies or the latest tax cut that favors billionaires and corporations over middle-income Americans. This is not what democracy is supposed to look like. But that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling the House of Representatives. We all have to work together to vote them out and flip the House in the midterms this year. We must elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable. So get engaged now, because it's going to take everyone. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash electorate to find a nearby swing district where you can volunteer and help turn things around. This is the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. Voting is vital, but it's going to take more than voting to turn things around. We need to get fired up, get out of our comfort zones, and volunteer. So go to swingleft.org slash electorate. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this week's episode, She the People. Isn't that nice? And whether you know it or not, we're making history right now. And as I look at you, I see making history is beautiful. And I grew up with teachers that told me about communities where they couldn't live, about lines they couldn't get in line in, and that jobs they couldn't get because of the color of their skin. We are done patching up our cuts and bruises, and we are done postponing our freedom. We are going to take the keys. That was Amy Allison, Rashida Tlaib, and Vanessa Daniel, all speakers at the She the People Summit, which was held in San Francisco last month. She the People is an initiative that was launched by Amy Allison, who you may remember from an earlier episode. She's the founder of She the People and president of Democracy in Color. You know, She the People is the first initiative of its kind to highlight and elevate the leadership of women of color. And there's no better time to do this. Just think for a moment about the women who are winning primaries. You've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Therese Davis, who'd be the first lesbian Native American Congress member. And of course, there's Stacey Abrams, who'd be the first black woman governor in America. Women of color are running for office in record numbers, and they're poised to make history. And with this inaugural summit, Amy Ellison created an inspiring gathering of women of color who were leaders, activists, and politicians all together under one roof. You know, and while I was there, it was really hard not to feel inspired about what our country could be with these women at the helm. And I got the chance to interview three icons, three women that I really admire. Congress member Barbara Lee, Black Lives Matter co-founder Alicia Garza, and Congress member Pramila Jayapal. And those three conversations were really special to me. But first, here's my earlier conversation that I had with Amy Allison about her vision for She the People and for the summit. Yeah, She the People is a initiative that I launched to elevate the political voice of women of color and to, one, to establish us as a voting block. 
we are a very powerful progressive voting bloc. And in the midterms, it'll be women of color that are the core of deciding whether or not progressives get elected on every level. And we're also, we have these courageous emblematic leaders that are, you know, if you look at them one at a time, it's like, okay, Stacey Abrams, that's interesting. Deb Holland um, running for Congress, she'd be the first native woman. That's interesting. Rashida Tlaib is Palestinian American and be the first Muslim in Congress from Michigan. That's interesting. But when you look, you start looking at the trend, women of color who are the least represented and most progressive, right? We are the least represented group are starting to win in Congress and other seats, not by being blessed by the Democratic Party, but by inspiring a broader uh, coalition that propels them to victory. We are going to be critical in, to victory in, in the midterms, but also critical to victory in 2020. I needed she the people to tell a new story to the nation about the power of women of color. And just like where, you know, Alabama really changed everything about how black women are perceived in our politic, that's what we're doing with she the people about women of color and that will change everything. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I am the candidate of the people of America. That was Shirley Chisholm, the first Black woman elected to Congress and the first woman to run for president for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. And I had the honor of talking to someone who'd worked on Shirley Chisholm's campaign in 1972. And that was Congress member Barbara Lee, an icon in her own right. Representative Lee, you know, she was the only member of Congress to vote against the use of force after 9-11. That's pretty big. Think about that for a minute. The only one. But I wanted to talk to her about how things had changed since she'd first run for office and about what's changed for women and women of color since that 1972 campaign when she worked with Shirley Chisholm. So here's my conversation with Congress member Barbara Lee. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. I was elected to Congress in 98 and I'm the 20th African-American woman elected since Congress had its first session and that's outrageous and so to change the um, institution and the culture of Congress where where I am is is very difficult but because of Shirley Chisholm they uh, can't uh, ignore us and there are about 21 members now in the CBC who are are black women and uh, so that's a big shift but when it comes to the issues that we champion It's always an uphill battle. For example, we wanted in our caucus poverty to be a big issue. People living below the poverty line and those who are low income and struggling. And for years and years and years, I tried to be the voice to get more of our members engaged in talking about not only fighting for the middle class, but fighting for people who are poor and low income and the most vulnerable. Took years. Well, now. 
I chair the WHIPS Task Force on Poverty, Income Inequality, and Opportunity, and we have 100 members. But it took a heck of a lot. And so while a lot has changed, it still takes a lot to uh, break through as an African-American woman. Now, we have a lot of people of color and, you know, leaders in Congress, you know, these icons, these veterans like John Lewis or Maxine Waters, you know, and to my knowledge, they've never been pushed to run for president, you know, and it's been almost 50 years since Shirley Chisholm ran. Right. And I just wonder, you know, why? Why have these very serious, you know, very committed, passionate politicians, passionate leaders never been pushed to run for president, even in modern times? I think a lot of it has to do with the history of this country. Uh, The vestiges of the Middle Passage and slavery are still with us. And when you look at um, just look at the gaps right now in terms of uh, employment, in terms of health care, in terms of mass incarceration rates, look at the issues around affordable housing and income gaps. African-Americans in general have fought from day one for parity and for justice. And so this is a long-term fight. And oftentimes the majority, they, uh, they want things done the old way. And, and they're still locked into thinking the old ways. And, you know, there are moves now to take us back to the days of Jim Crow. And so we're constantly, black women especially, playing defense and offense. We're trying to stop them from uh, eroding the gains that we've made. And we're fighting for progress and for equality and for justice. So we're doing it all at the same time. You know, voter suppression, I feel like it's something that we're constantly battling, right? It's it's persistent. You know, but when I think about the determination of those citizens on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, back in Selma, you know, they were determined. They were determined to not be defeated. And I think about now, a lot of things have changed. I just feel like we are not doing a good job of conveying to people that their right to vote is vital. And to convey to them that it's that it's vital to retain that energy, but to express ourselves at the ballot box. You know, how do we get that energy back? I don't know if it's about getting that energy back as much as that is as it is really um, making people know their power and know that uh, this is a democracy. And if they're not engaged in voting and part of this process, there will be no progress because others will continue with their really right wing backwards agenda. I was an observer in the elections in uh, South Africa when President Mandela was elected. I saw lines and lines and lines, and it's still like that in Zimbabwe recently, of people lining up to vote. Uh, I saw women who were in labor. They were being carried in a wheelbarrow to the voting place. They understood how important this vote was, and they knew the connection between ending apartheid and voting. And I'm concerned in this country that a lot of us don't understand the connection, for example, between voting and turning back the clock on affirmative action and voting rights, because the president, for example, has the Supreme Court appointee. And when you look at, say, a Kavanaugh now, who we know will rule against us. We're talking about a whole generational, uh, all, all of the laws that have been made and passed turned back and eroded. And so I don't think that there may be that connection between voting and our daily lives. And that may be 
part of our problem as those of us who elected, we haven't made that connection as clear as it should be. But when I hear and see our young people and our millennials especially, they get it. They're, they understand what social justice is. They understand what street heat is. They understand what uh, pressuring our government and the right to petition the government. They understand all of this. And so their voice and what they're doing is, is badly needed. And whether that translates into voting, we'll see. That's the next step. But with the movement taking place, and it's, I think it's beginning to broaden even more so, I'm really hopeful for the future and that uh, this will turn into a political movement. You know, sometimes I fear that, you know, as soon as we have a victory, if we take back the House or the Senate, all of that energy behind this movement, behind the resistance, you know, it'll just evaporate. How do we make sure that the fire keeps burning inside of people, you know, beyond midterms and beyond 2020? Right now, I believe it's 7% of women, uh, 7% of Congress are women of color right now. Uh, we don't have any option. We can't burn out. I mean, you know, when I talk to people about uh, my background, for example, when I started school, I couldn't go to public schools because I was black. You know, and I remember the colored only water fountain. And I remember my dad being told in his military uniform, being told he couldn't be served at a restaurant and called an N-word. And so you can't tell me that we get burned out. <laughs> this is a fight we're in. And I think, and you know, while a lot don't want to look to history, I have to go to um, the Ghanaian symbol of Sankofa. In order to move forward, in order to progress, this is a bird, a mythical bird, looking back with an egg in her mouth. You have to know your history. You have to know where you came from, the struggles you've encountered, the problems, your mistakes, you know, the gains you've made. You got to know all this in order to move forward. And so I think it's extremely important that uh, young people especially understand that in order to move forward, we have to know our history. And if you know your history, you won't get burned out. Because you'll see that so many people did die and some say it doesn't matter now we got to move forward. Well, yeah, it does matter because you would not be here if it had it not been for them. And so you've got to make sure that the next generation, you know, has that there's more progress for the next generation. So it's up to us to do that. So as black women, especially, we don't have any option to burn out. A powerful, powerful movement has emerged that is bigger than Black Lives Matter. We're an organization. It's not going to be easy. It never has been easy. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to make each other upset. We're going to make each other mad. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to disagree. But I'm here to tell you, we got to keep going. That's Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And she's someone who I truly revere and whose work I deeply admire. The Black Lives Matter movement, it's changed the national conversation around race. And I was really excited that I'd get to meet her and talk to her at the summit. But I was also a little nervous. And the nervousness was out of this burning question I wanted to ask her about her past criticisms of President Obama, someone I also revere. And I wasn't sure it was something that we'd agree on. 
and I was really anxious about that. You know, but our conversation really expanded my thinking about a lot of things that I thought I understood really well. I was challenged to think deeper. You know, Alicia Garza was warm and wise and, and kind and funny. And that helped me get past my nervousness to ask my question about President Obama. So here's my conversation with Alicia Garza. So when was the honeymoon over for you with President Obama? You know, when did President Obama first break your heart, your political heart? The moment when he broke my heart was right after Trayvon Martin um, was killed and his killer was acquitted. And Barack Obama made a speech that talked about how Trayvon could have been his son, but he also went on to talk about how it was important to let the system do its job. And what we saw in the acquittal of George Zimmerman was that the system failed Trayvon Martin's family. And so it really was an appeal to peace as opposed to appeal to justice. And it didn't acknowledge the rage and the anger that was righteous and rightful of our communities. And I think that that wasn't just a point for me, it was a point for a lot of people. And what I wanted him to say was, from this moment on, what the focus of my presidency will be is making sure that we don't lose any more Trayvons from our communities. That's what I wanted him to say. But instead, I think he he appealed to this notion that if we just follow the rules, that things will turn out the right way. And I think that that is not true. And I think that he changed over time. He changed because a movement pushed him to change. He did incredible things like give more than 7,500 people freedom from cages, right? At the end of his presidency, that was important. But I can say over the span of eight years, it took him a long time to do more than chastise protesters and people who are in the streets angry and upset about the ways in which these systems are failing our communities. And so that was really the moment when my heart was broken. And I also understood that for a black man as president who is being called a monkey and all kinds of things um, every day, that it is enticing to try and take the moral high ground in a dynamic where um, something very immoral had happened. But what I wanted from him was to drop the hammer and talk about the failures of our criminal justice system as it relates to black families. And I think that he didn't feel that he could do that. And so that also broke my heart, to be quite honest with you, because what does it mean that we can achieve a dream like having a black president, right? If that black president doesn't feel like if they speak to issues that are specific to black communities, then they're no longer everybody's president. And so I think it was a really difficult uh, conundrum for them. And so I felt that, and that breaks my heart that we can't be who we are and speak to what we know about what it means to walk through the world every day without feeling like, someone's going to gaslight us into saying that you're only a president for black people. You know, one of the things that I did observe about about him, about President Obama, was that I think early on he made a decision about who he wanted to be as president. Right. 
And, you know, I'm not saying that he isn't authentic or he wasn't authentic, but I think all presidents, you know, given the fact that they have these really high profiles, they need to determine who they are publicly, what their public persona is. And I think for Obama, you know, he made that decision and he stuck with that persona. He stuck with that branding and he was very, very good at, you know, sticking to that. Yeah. And let me say this. I just saw an, an interview with Joe Biden. And we could talk about that too, child, because, you know, <laughs> uh, but he said that um, that when Trump was elected, that he and Barack Obama made a decision to not be public in any kind of criticism of the Trump administration for a year because they wanted to let the administration do its job and that he now regretted that. And I think it's I tell that story because I think it's an example of the ways in which respectability doesn't serve us. Being silent in the face of things that are wrong for the sake of maintaining an image of um, civility um, has really not served us and it hasn't done us any good. And in the last year and a half, the most popular president, I think maybe in history, to be completely silent as the president of the United States currently is putting babies in cages um, is, 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 is also heartbreaking. And so I think what we should take from this, and this isn't like a scolding of Barack Obama, it's just telling the truth about um, the ways in which uh, we've got to update our methods of achieving change. And part of what that means is sometimes you have to say things that are unpopular, but right, rather than um, trying to be popular, but being really, really wrong. You know, but when I hear that, the first thing that I think is that, you know, there were lots of people saying these things, right? And I'm just not really sure what he could have added, right? That would have changed the conversation. And, you know, and that goes along with, you know, not being really sure what he owes us at this juncture or what his role is as a, as a private citizen right now. Thing. I wasn't convinced that his saying anything would have added to what was, you know, glaringly obvious about this administration. Right. Yeah, it needed to be said by him. And again, I don't want to take away from the fact that after uh, doing the hardest job for eight years and not being able to be with your family in the way that you want to and be who you are in the way that you want to, um, it's a tall order. But I have to say also, it's the right thing to do. And when you know that you have a platform where millions and millions of people follow you and root for you and believe in you and listen to you, it is irresponsible not to use that platform in the pursuit of justice. And I am glad that they have acknowledged that that was the wrong decision because I think it's a learning moment um, for everyone about what it means to be in the midst of such incredible decline and what each of us needs to do in order to turn that around. You know, one of my personal mantras is representation matters. And I know that you don't always hold that view, you know, you know, but one example that I'm thinking of is London Breed's campaign for San Francisco. For people who are listening, um, London Breed is the first black woman to become mayor of San Francisco. And, you know, for me, when I hear her story, when I hear her personal backstory, I hear my own story, right? And I think that even if I don't agree with some of her policies, I don't live in San Francisco, by the way, but anyway, but, you know, even if I don't agree with some of her policies, 
it's a shorter path for her to get to where I am in relation to my needs as a constituent, you know, because we have these unique things in common versus someone who has not shared my unique experiences as a black woman. But you don't always hold that view. Um, I think that uh, I think it's important for us to celebrate um, women like London Breed, black women like London Breed, who um, are breaking barriers and breaking ceilings. I do think that's important. And I also think that it's important to make sure that we're not just satisfied with representation. And the reason that I say that is because um, we won't get the things that we want that way. And people don't move on their own on policy. They move from interests. And I will say that you know, we had the same dynamic with Barack Obama, where we were really excited about having a black president, and we should be. He's the first black president ever in the history of this country. And even though I disagreed with him on a lot of different things, um, I still felt proud that when I would turn on the television and listen to a press conference, that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were there and giving that message. And it was never lost on me how important and historical that is. And I will say that it took a movement to move Barack Obama around a number of issues that should not have been that difficult. Uh, the issue of same-sex marriage, uh, the issue of criminal justice reform, even the issue of Black Lives Matter. He moved on that issue because a movement moved him. And so I think it's important that we don't mistake being at the table with being at the table with the right agenda. And in a place like San Francisco, I can tell you that also matters. Um, we are in a place right now where just a few miles southeast of us is a black community that is under siege. Uh, in the last couple of months, there have been a number of different articles about what's happening at the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard. When I first learned how to organize, I learned how to organize in Bayview Hunters Point, and I helped to lead campaigns in that community that was trying to force the city, the county, the state, and the federal government to completely clean the land before it was being built on and to make sure that everything that was being built there was being built with the people who lived in that community in mind. And I can tell you that over 10 years, we heard over and over again um, that people were against progress and that they were asking for too much. But now in the last few months, we've been hearing that there's radiation that's being found um, in the ground, that a radioactive uh, object was found in the ground. And people, poor black people, live around that shipyard. I will say that London Breed was on the Redevelopment Commission um, making decisions about whether or not to move that project forward. And so I, I say all this to say, and, and you know, London and I have talked about this, right? We have yeah. difference on this, um, but, but healthy and respectful difference. I will say that this is an example of how it is not enough to have a black woman who has had an incredible amount of adversity in her life sit in a position of power if she is not connected to a movement that can help her deep, more deeply understand a bunch of different perspectives around how to solve the problems that face our communities. Um, and so that's why I say it's not enough to just be at the table, 
We need to be putting people in positions of power that share our vision for what our future should look like. And if we don't do that, we will end up in this weird cycle of having black people in positions of power, but having really divergent notions of what black futures can actually look and feel like. So in relation to that, um, does this also apply to police departments, you know, and the over policing of black communities is part of the solution, not better representation or to have police departments that better reflect the communities that they police? No, Um, I think too often when we talk about policing, we do it in such a way that we're talking about individuals as opposed to systems. And um, we have seen many instances over the last five years of black and uh, Latino and Asian officers killing black people. So it's not a question of having more black police, although um, I think you one could argue that if you have more people represented in a police department that actually are from that community and know it, that somehow their practice will be different. And I think what we found is that that's not totally true, that what is true is that policing is a job and it has a certain uh, uh, number of different things that it is responsible for carrying out and that the rules of policing fundamentally uh, look at black people and people of color as criminals off the bat. And so it's not enough to have black police in those positions because honestly, that training is um, putting black people in a position to see other black people as criminals. Right, right, right. Okay. So I I think that actually what we... um, do to transform the system of policing is reconsider the question of what makes us safe. And what keeps us safe is people having the things that they need. And when people don't have the things that they need, when they are living in conditions of desperation, um, then we see the results of that. And it both is a challenge for policing in and of itself. You'll have police officers telling you, you know, a lot of the work that I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing because I'm doing the work of social workers and I'm not trained as a social worker. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the work of of a um, decimated uh, infrastructure and that is not my job and it is causing additional stresses and it's causing me to be resentful of the work that I have to do because I don't have the resources for it. But at the same time, you will also find and you will hear communities saying, you know, why are we bringing police in to solve problems when actually the solution to this problem is making sure that people are housed, that people have access to education. I just read an article yesterday about a young child who uh, was turned away from their school. And as they were leaving the school, it must've been because they were truant or something, as they were leaving their school, they were shot and killed. And so I just keep thinking to myself, What does putting more police in that community do about the fact that that school was not that child's sanctuary? So I I think that when we're thinking about policing, we actually have to entertain a conversation about safety and what keeps us safe. And what we know uh, from best practices around the country is that what keeps people safe is having access to the things that they need so that they can live dignified lives. You know, I think about voter suppression a lot, actually, every single day. You know, but then I remember that the average person doesn't think about it as often as I do or, you know, doesn't realize that there is this concerted effort to keep them from expressing their right to vote. Right. You know, and I 
I wonder how we convince people, you know, how do we convey to them how vital it is for everyone to exercise that right, no matter what barrier is is placed in front of them? Yeah, I think the first thing is for people to be able to see themselves. And, you know, uh, I, like many black people, um, have been told ever since I was close to being able to be of age to vote what kinds of sacrifices my mother and my grandmother and people who came before me made so that I could do that. And so I take that very seriously. But every single election cycle, I think to myself, here we go again. Because there's very rarely something that I'm seeing that I see myself reflected in. And I'm constantly having to make this choice of how do you avoid the worst thing possible as opposed to how do you move towards the thing that speaks the most to you? And I think when we're talking about voter suppression, there is the, the movement um, from conservatives, right? To make sure that the most progressive voters in this country don't go to the polls. But then I think there's also something that's happening on the progressive side where our communities are being used as window dressing. And, um, you know, it's important to have, you know, a black voice saying this or an indigenous voice saying that. But at the end of the day, um, what are we changing about the quality of life for indigenous people? What are we changing about the quality of life for black people? And the progressive movement should be the place where those ideas are being incubated. And I think that we still have a long way to go. And who's leading that charge, I think, are indigenous people and other communities of color, right? Um, who are saying, we're not gonna wait for you to figure this out. We're gonna do it, we're gonna do it our way. And you're either gonna get on the train or you're gonna get out of the way. And so I think what we're gonna see in the next five years or so is a lot of really important shifts that are being driven by people who feel and who experience disenfranchisement from the decisions that impact their lives and are hell bent on changing not just policy, but practice so that we're actually transforming the way that this whole process works in the first place. You know, I live in a pretty progressive town and there are these Black Lives Matter signs, you know, in nearly every yard or every window. Right. And I always wonder who's behind those signs and, you know, whether it's just branding for them. You know, there's this kind of commodification of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, and I wonder sometimes, you know, if everyone who had a sign in their yards, if they had put their bodies where their beliefs are, you know, we'd be in a much different place. You know, does that kind of, you know, commodification or branding bother you? Um, well, I'll say this. I think somebody who's putting a Black Lives Matter sign in their window or in their front yard, in some ways is making a very public statement about what they believe. And so in that way, I don't think that represents commodification. But I do think that Black has become a brand and um, that activism has become a brand. And I think we saw this, right, with Colin Kaepernick and Nike, and people having a lot of mixed reactions about Nike kind of putting out this message, but then the practices that they have around the world, right? And not wanting to separate out some kinds of justice, right? While committing other kinds of injustice. And so I think what's really important here then is to make sure that brands have substance, right? And that it is actually important to have um, to have your message 
translate everywhere. But we also have to make sure that we don't stop there, that we're not just satisfied with the message being everywhere and that the message becomes practice and that the message becomes policy. And I only decided to run for office because I got tired of trying to get other people to do the things that we felt should be done. And when people say to me, I want to run for office, what advice do you have? I say, think about what you want to do, not who you want to be. Because that's why we're here, because we want to do something and make the world a different place for so many people in our communities that have not been represented for so long. That was Congress member Pramila Jayapal. A couple of months before today's conversation, I heard her speak about the immigration and border crisis. It was just shortly after she'd made a visit to a local immigrant detention center. And when I heard her speak, she was visibly moved and emotional about what she'd seen there. Her genuine reaction really stayed with me. And it was one of the first things I wanted to ask her about when I spoke with her at the summit. You know, how the children were faring who'd been separated from their families. And what was the state of the crisis? How were these families doing? Yeah, it's been really hard to keep it at the front, you know, on the front pages. And I think we still have, I think it's 413 kids who have not been reunited with their families. And um, there are still this, the entire group, the 3000 families who had this happen are really the victims of state-sponsored violence. And I don't think that we have understood, recognized, or compensated for that violence that we've inflicted on them. It's been very difficult to continue to try to draw attention to what's happening. Some of the stories of the children as they came out, and I can't remember if I had already gone to the border at the time that I spoke um, when, when we met the first time, but going down to the border and talking to the children that had just been released and had just been reunited with their families and hearing from them what they were told by these ICE agents and Customs and Border Patrol agents that their mothers had abandoned them, that they would never see their families again. And just thinking about that as a mother, thinking about that as a child, you know, this one child was weeping as she said this. We watched some of the families being reunited and these children literally not going to their mothers and turning away from them because they had thought that they had abandoned them. So I think the damage is done and will be longstanding. And there are still 413 children who haven't been reunited. And in the midst of all of this, the government has never been held accountable. And to me, that's the this was state-sponsored violence in my book. And so I am looking forward to being able to go back to this issue. If we take back the House in November, I'm on the Judiciary Committee. I've been the one that's been banging the gavel, you know, banging on my on my desk the whole time, asking for these hearings and asking for real accountability. And I intend to continue to pursue that if we if we're back in the house. You know, but I feel like no one has been able to hold this administration accountable, right? I'm thinking about that deadline that they that they miss for reuniting families. You no, know, who's going to hold them accountable? 
Well, we can. Congress can and the American people can. I mean, first of all, through through voting and through the elections, these people that never spoke up, never said anything, never did anything, they should be held accountable at the ballot box. But also, I think that we in Congress, as soon as we have some power, um, because right now we don't control anything, and so we've not been able to drag people before us and hold them accountable. But, you know, as soon as we have some power, we do have to do that. And to me, that is not just... Um, making it clear what the government did, but there should be reparations in that, you know, all of these families, in my view, should be paroled in to the country. We still are waiting for the government to pay the costs of reuniting some of these families. Um, And so there are a number of things that actually need to be done to make the families not just whole, but to make up for what what the government has done. And then in addition, there's a whole set of things that we need to do to make sure this never happens again. That's in terms of policy change, in terms of legislation. My detention reform bill, which is a complete transformation of the immigrant detention system, would make sure that some of these things that happened would never happen again. And I believe we have something like uh, 107 or 108 co-sponsors of that bill. And our goal is to try to get up to 150 or 160 so that we can pass legislation that completely transforms what we do to immigrants when they come across the border, when they're seeking asylum, when they're seeking refuge, um, and how we treat children in the system. So, you know, one of the criticisms that I've heard recently about Democrats, you know, and I'm a Democrat, of course, but one of the criticisms I've heard was this lack of focus on creating a path to citizenship as a priority. It wasn't made a priority. You know, DACA, DACA was great, right? But beyond DACA. But I think that if we had focused on that, when we had power, we we would have avoided this whole crisis potentially, right? But we also would have begun to create, you know, an entirely new voting block on the left. I mean, do you think that's a fair criticism? Absolutely. I was an activist on the outside for, you know, for 15 years before becoming an elected official. And part of the reason I ran for office is because I got tired of trying to get people to do the things that I felt that we should be doing. And, and Democrats are in a good place now, but it has taken a lot of work, a lot of movement building, a lot of pushing. And I think it will continue to take pushing to make sure people feel comfortable with this issue because the Republicans just, I've become convinced since coming into Congress, they have no interest in fixing a broken immigration system or providing a pathway to citizenship or doing anything that actually helps move our communities and our country forward on around immigration. And so because it really benefits them to have it out there as a wedge issue. And it is very easily made into a wedge issue. And so we have to make sure that we're educating Democrats, good Democrats who might want to do the right thing, but they're just not totally comfortable about how to talk about it. How do you beat back, you know, some of the attacks on them when they support immigrants? So that's what we're spending a lot of time doing, actually, is educating people about what the system is, how broken it is, because I really believe that if we take back the majority, we have got to pass comprehensive, humane immigration reform with the path to citizenship for the 11 million, fixing the family reunification system, addressing enforcement, um, and not leave it on the table as a political football that Republicans can continue to kick around. Now, we're both from the same region, um, you know, where technology is a big, big driver for the economy. And, you know, but these regressive immigration policies, they must have had a big impact on this industry, right? 
Do you think that there's been a noticeable impact? Oh, yeah. It's affected the tech industry in a huge way. I mean, not only are the work visas for H-1Bs and H-4s, which are the spouses of H-1Bs, these are really competent women of color who come over with their husbands. And then until until we worked with Obama to really push for spouses to be able to work, they weren't able to work. And in some cases, they were way more qualified than their husbands. Um, but they were just sitting around and depression was a huge issue. So we worked with the Obama administration to get a rule passed to allow those visa holders to work. Well, one of the, one of the things that is on the table now is the Trump administration is talking about rolling it back. And so it's everything from the employers who are trying to hire good, talented immigrants, the spouses of those immigrants, the farm workers um, who, you know, Washington state is known for its agriculture and its produce. And it's powered by undocumented immigrants, the domestic care workers. We have a big elder care, senior care, you know, industry. And it's mostly, again, a lot of immigrant women who are part of that hotel workers, restaurant workers. So we are deeply affected by immigration. And it's why in our state, we have been able to work when I was in the Senate, and then before that as an activist leading the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state, we were able to work with Republicans to put in place some of the best immigrant-friendly policies in the country. Um, I worked on one of the first, what's now being called Sanctuary City Ordinances. I helped pass that in 2002 in Seattle. And that's because I think everybody understands how important immigration is. And we're fairly unusual in Washington state in that we're a top 10 refugee resettlement destination. We also have equal percentages of Latino, API, and everything else immigrants. So we're not dominated by just one group from one place. So immigration is the picture of immigration and the story of immigration is very, very diverse. We have a lot of Somalis. We have a lot of, uh, you know, folks from Vietnam. We have a lot of people from all over the world. So it has been very important to the city and to our employers and to our state. I was reading recently about your Medicare for All pack. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I'm very excited. I have been a, a strong supporter of single-payer health care going back many years when we were fighting around the Affordable Care Act when that was coming into place. I was really pushing for a single-payer system at that time. And the Affordable Care Act has been uh, amazing, has really expanded health care for millions of people. But we really do need a single payer government funded system. And I believe that Medicare for all is the way to do that. It's an existing system that we can tweak, that we can make better, but that we can put in place to really drive down the cost of pharmaceutical drugs, you know, not have people be one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy anymore. So I started a Medicare for all caucus within the Democratic caucus within the House, and we have 77 founding members. But I realized that we also need to do something to help really support, educate, provide resources to um, candidates who are running for office, who are excited about Medicare for All, are helping to build the movement on the outside. And so we started a Medicare for All PAC. And um, I'm incredibly excited. It's completely funded by grassroots small donations. And um, we are going to go on the road with it and we're going to support candidates. We just started it. So we'll be able to do a little bit in this election, but really we're looking at 2020 and really helping 
to build that outside movement and support the candidates who know that this is not some crazy progressive idea. This is actually the idea that drives innovation and creativity in almost every industrialized country in the world, except for the United States, where we are really crippled by the healthcare system we have right now. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me and, and taking time to talk to me today. I want to thank you for all of your work and your advocacy and your activism. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to find out about the Medicare for All PAC, you can visit PassMedicareForAll.org. That's PassMedicareForAll.org. Also, if you're interested in learning more about the She the People initiative, go to SheThePeople.org. Again, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Nice.